0: Audiobooks are the fastest growing segment of the book market. While paper and ebook sales grow by a measly 1 to 4% a year and traditional ebook sales sometimes even shrink, audiobooks are growing by 20 to 25% every year year over year. If you don't have an audiobook, you are missing out on that sales growth and you're missing out on sales to readers like me who exclusively listen to audiobooks. Since I graduated from college, I've purchased and listened to perhaps 1,000 audiobooks. And in that same time, I have purchased and read maybe a dozen. Paper and ebooks, which means if you want to reach me, you've got to reach me with an audiobook. This is excluding children's books, of course. Uh, my daughter has had me read her approximately 1 million paper children's books each day, <laughs> or rather, she has me read the same book 1 million times. But back to audiobooks just because you have an audiobook, that doesn't mean that people are reading it. While the audiobook haystack is much smaller than the ebook haystack, you are still competing for attention with hundreds of thousands of other books. So, how do you market your audiobook, and how do you do it effectively? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and today we have a special guest. He's the founder and CEO of Audavita Studios, an audiobook creation and marketing firm. David Wolf, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast.
1: Tom, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: So audiobooks are really hot, and it is not only a booming market for authors, but it's also a booming market for companies that help authors with their audiobooks. So let's jump right into The first strategy of getting more audiobook sales, and that is to hire a celebrity narrator. Now, I will say, as an audiobook reader, I not only follow the authors that I like, I also follow the narrators that I like. When I'm looking to fill my 1,000 audiobooks, I will click on a narrator's name in Audible and browse their books. And I have purchased books solely because Michael Kramer narrated them. I think I could listen to that man read the phone book (laughs) and be happy with it. So what are some tips when it comes to hiring a celebrity narrator?
1: There's a performance art, particularly with the fiction side of the market, which I know you're more um, uh, active in yourself, and the capacity for authors to do that themselves is, is probably not nearly non-existent. You really do need an actor to pull off the narration, the changing of character, the emotional content, the action sequences, the pacing. It really takes a skilled actor. So aside from the fact that there are no name, like you mentioned, that may attract more listeners, more buyers to buy, just the technique required to pull off an audiobook can be much better handled by bringing in a celebrity. It's expensive to produce with a celebrity. I mean, it probably goes without saying. So the good deal of the fiction authors we work with are not in a position where they can do that.
0: And I'll say there's two different ways of uh, working with celebrity narrators, or maybe a better way to put it is two different kinds of of celebrity narrator. So one is where you have Elijah Wood read Huckleberry Finn, right, where you pick a narrator to read the book in there, a famous Hollywood celebrity. Another good example of this is Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court was read by the actor who played Ron Swanson in Parks and Recreation. He's got that real like down to earth, down home voice, and it's a good fit for that kind of book. But in fiction, you don't have to get a Hollywood narrator. In fact, that's kind of tricky cuz Hollywood actors hate audiobook narration. The act of narrating an audiobook is very grueling and very boring for them and they'd much and it's not very glamorous. It doesn't have the cachet of say narrating an animated film. But what you'll find is these micro narrators where one narrator does all of the books in a micro genre or all the top books in a micro genre. So there's a couple of narrators who do military science fiction. And when it's a space battle, and it's you know a top-selling space battle, there's probably sixty percent chance it's going to be one of these two or three guys reading that space battle. And for somebody who reads a lot of military science fiction, like I do, the fact that you have that narrator tells me one, you're familiar with the market. You've done the research of the other books in your market, and you're you know paying attention. And two, it tells me, well, gosh, if you can afford this narrator, there must be something about your book. Or if this narrator has chosen to work on your book. Because savvy narrators are very careful with their brand and they try to stay close to their brand because they know they're building that reputation where they bring their own audience to the audiobook. Now I will say it doesn't have to be a celebrity narrator. This is just one of the strategies. And for nonfiction, maybe the better strategy is to become your own celebrity narrator.
1: Well, I love that, and that's you know you're right down the middle with us, Thomas, in, in terms of how we work and what we what I typically will say to a narrator who is an author uh, that is a speaker as well, they're a consultant. They are what I call the voice brand or the voice of their brand, and you know it's really the same argument around positioning on a podcast. You're the voice of connectivity to your market, so. it makes sense that you would be representing, you know, your material, your content and getting it out to market. People feel like they know you, they they'll more likely to hire you for a keynote, let's say. So that's that activates that whole side of the marketing spectrum as you've alluded to.
0: That's right. And nowadays with how easy it is to get people to hear your voice, chances are the first time they've heard your voice is not in your audiobook. In fact, it's now so much with webinars and with podcasts and with YouTube videos and recorded speeches They're expecting your voice if it's nonfiction often because they've already heard you on stage. And I will say, uh, while a celebrity narrator is really helpful for fiction, it can be sometimes a little jarring. I want to hear Malcolm Gladwell read Malcolm Gladwell's book because I listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast and Malcolm Gladwell narrated his other books and sometimes when an author switches you know they normally read their books but they have somebody else read their books it can be a bit jarring even for fiction Uh, James L. Rubart wrote his most recent book was from a female point of view so he had a female narrator and I will say it was different because he'd read all of his previous books himself yep Yep.
1: There's a disconnect sometimes with that. I've talked to um, some of our clients had done a previous audio book and they will tell me that their fans, uh, you know, air quotes, fans had a reaction to exactly that disconnect. They d- didn't feel like they were as connected to the author the way they would be. This is a very intimate medium, much like the podcast world. So,
0: yeah. So the narrator of the book gives the reader a second reason to say yes to the book. And there's a certain kind of narrator they're expecting. For a nonfiction, it may be you. For fiction, it may be you know one of the narrators they've heard before. But I will say the narrator also gives people a second reason to say no to the book. If you look at the most recent Hunger Games book on Audible right now, all of the top reviews are complaining about the narrator. People love the book. It's a popular book, but they hate the narrator. And so it's really important that you either become a good enough narrator or that you hire a good enough narrator so that you're not hurting your brand. Because if people are thinking about buying your audiobook and they go to the page and they see a bunch of one-star reviews for the narrator, it may cause them not to buy the book. And I will say, I have not purchased books if enough people are complaining about the narrator because I don't want to listen to a bad narrator for six hours.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of risk in that. Like any other business decision you make, uh, you need to cast it very carefully. We have a team, uh, Steve Corona and Kim Monty. They are our casting team, and, and they spend a lot of energy sorting out from the audition scripts when we work with our fiction authors.
0: Sorry, and producing an audiobook can make you feel a little bit like a Hollywood producer because you get to make casting decisions just like if you were in uh, Hollywood. Speaking of production, that actually leads us to our next strategy, which is to have your audiobook ready at launch. This is a huge mistake I see a lot of indie authors making, especially. They are so excited to get their book out, and getting the ebook and the paper book out quickly is so trivial right you upload your vellum file you click publish you wait two or three days and boom you're selling books which for those of you going through our book launch blueprint note is the wrong strategy book launches take time to put together you need all of the parade happening at the same time if you have parts of the parade going on different days of the week you don't have a parade you just have people driving down the street Uh, so it takes time to put together book launch and you've heard me talk about that before on the podcast but it also takes time to put together an audiobook and the reason you want your audio Book available at launch is that all of the attention that you're doing during your book launch, getting people excited, doing reviews, doing media, doing email, all the things we've talked about in other episodes, all of that is, if you're doing it well, bringing attention to your Amazon page where people are then making a purchasing decision where they're either buying the ebook or they're buying the paper book, or if you have your audiobook ready, they're buying the audiobook, which means, and the audiobook. Often makes you the most money on a per unit basis. You're making more from the audiobook than you are from the E or the paper. And so, why wouldn't you have that at launch? If you wait until after all of that excitement, all of that attention, all of that energy is gone, and then you launch your audiobook to an empty room, don't be surprised if no one gets excited for your audiobook. And I know this because I made this exact mistake myself. Now, to be fair, I wasn't planning on doing an audiobook at all, but I eventually made one, and the audiobook did not set the world on fire because we launched it a year or so after the book came out.
1: Yep, yep. No, it's true. And we've worked with uh, authors having this exact conversation. When should I do it? Um, There is a nuance now... And I think some of this has to do with you know, we're sitting together in, in the midst of COVID and there's been some interruptions in all businesses, but the distribution platforms that uh, we rely on to get books live to market on the audiobook production side, uh, there's a lag. It used to take about 14 business days to go live on the main one, which is ACX. Now it's taking uh, considerably longer, sometimes 30 or 45 days. So there is a nuance to this timing thing you're talking about. But generally, conceptually, I am of the agreement that you should launch all of them at the same time. They're, they're, I've heard an argument that, oh, doesn't it give you another pop after the fact? But I think as you're saying, and I can see uh, that you're nodding your head, uh, Thomas, the the truth is is that that's a rationalization. the customer-driven decision that you pointed to you've got you know all the different versions on your amazon page let the consumer make the choice about how they want to consume your content if the audio is not there you might lose them entirely because they don't feel like they have time to sit and read which is the reason the audiobook market is growing from 20 to 25 percent year over year so that's the
0: case yeah this is the same rationale i heard 10 years ago from publishers who are like we're going to release the paper book first and then we're going to release the ebook a month or two later because we don't want to cannibalize the paper sales with ebook sales. And that sounds so stupid to us now, right? We have the benefit of hindsight to realize that people prefer a format. And, and think about this. Not everyone even has a choice, right? If somebody is a busy CEO and they just don't have time to read and they're listening, that's their only format. If somebody is older, they have maybe have poor eyesight and they can only read on the Kindle, they're not going to buy your paper book unless you've got a large font edition, which if you're, you don't. <laughs> Nobody's doing that anymore because the Kindle's so good at making the font size exactly what it needs to be for the reader. And so for an older person or for somebody with failing eyesight, Kindle's really popular, which is, by the way, why Kindle users skew older. So there's this myth that the kids are reading on Kindles, and that's not true. Kids actually prefer paper. It's uh, the older you are, the more likely you are to prefer a Kindle, and the more likely you are to be able to afford (laughs) buying a separate device just for reading books. Let's not say young people don't read books, but they, they have that preference, and really, if you want to have followers, you need to be a servant. And what better way to serve your readers than by giving them your book in the format they want. And it makes all of your promotion that much more effective because the percentage of people that would have bounced from the page like I do, i I'd bounce from a page if it doesn't have an audiobook. And there's another aspect of this that's really key. There's an author that I've read every single one of his books. When he has a new book come out, Amazon sends me an email saying, hey, this author, who have you read every one of his books, has a new book. I did not get that email for his most recent book. Do you know why? He didn't have the audio at launch. So I got an email from somewhere else. I got an email from Goodreads, which did send me the email. I was like, "Ooh, I didn't know he had a new book out. Go to his Amazon page. There's no audiobook version. And what do I do? I leave. He could have had my $10 for my audiobook credit, and he lost it. So there's a huge penalty, and that idea of a second bump, I next time, if you hear somebody tell you that, just say, show me the numbers of the bump. <laughs> I want to see that, that it exists in real world and isn't just your hope and your excuse for why you got the book out late. Our third strategy for boosting your audiobook sales is to promote your paper book. Believe it or not, people often, if they really enjoy a book, want to own it in multiple formats. And this is not just true with the paper book, but also with the ebook. And especially now with Audible, people can read the ebook and then switch to the audio book and pick up right where they left off and switch back. So uh, David, why is this such a powerful strategy?
1: Well, I think you've, you've hit on it exactly right. You may have time. I think the consumer may want to switch back and forth. That just seems intuitively something that some consumers would want to do and do the syncing that you uh, you just talked about. So again, the multi-strategy approach, the multi-format approach is so critical to success in the marketplace because you don't, you know, it's the, it's the, the old Burger King line, have it your way. It's like people, you don't know how what their preferences are and their preferences might even change across. A single title, uh, as we're talking about here. So I think it's, as you said, it's very, very powerful. I think that there may even be an audience that likes to follow along while they're listening. I don't know that for a fact. That's just something I'm thinking about and wondering if that's true. But it
0: could be. I think it's true for nonfiction. For so if somebody's really intent, they're like, I've got to learn this. They want to have the, to be able to listen, but they also want to be able to interact with a physical book. And they want to be able to highlight. They want to be able to mark up. And I will say, this mostly goes the other way, where people who buy the audiobook, and if they're really loving it, they'll then go and buy the paper book. And I will say, Brandon Sanderson, who's an author whom I love, he has Michael Kramer and Kate Redding read his epic fantasy. They're the top two, in my opinion, narrators. And a secret a lot of people don't know is that they're married. So they're recording in the same studio. (laughs) And when he did his Kickstarter about uh, his Way of Kings book, Who did the narration for the Kickstarter? Michael Kramer and Kate Redding, the people you'd been hearing the voice of. So somebody like me who doesn't normally buy a paper book, I spent $250 for the Leather Bound Edition for the audiobook I had already purchased. (laughs) So you know, he sold $6 million worth of that Leather Bound Edition. And I think a no small part of that was the emotional attachment we had to those narrators in those narrator voices. If Michael Kramer is going to ask me to buy a Leather Bound Edition, I'm going to consider it.
1: Yeah right exactly it's right exactly it's like a testimonial it's a, to his own work it's a, a, there is something about the physicality of of books the smell of the paper the, the the holding them in your hand the turning of the pages that
0: is lost with digital let's face it I mean it's just not the same experience and some people really like that tactile thing so yeah. there's, There's pros and cons of the different formats, and it's not your place as the author to tell somebody which way they should experience your book. It's your place to serve them the way they want to be served, as we've already talked about. So the next strategy of promoting your audiobook is price pulsing on Chirp. Now, this is a strategy that you have to decide ahead of time whether or not you want to implement. So a lot of indie authors go with ACX, which is Audible's audiobook publishing platform. And if you aren't careful when you sign up for ACX, you commit to being exclusive to ACX for the rest of your life or the next seven years, whichever comes first, which you never know in the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) Um, But the seven years is typically when a book gets all of its sales. So it's, it's for the life of the book, effectively. So if you're exclusive to ACX, you can't use Chirp. So some of you are asking, what is Chirp? Chirp is owned by BookBub, and it is Bookbub for audiobooks. So people sign up for Chirp uh, for free. They put their email address in and then they get an email every day of deals where they can buy an audiobook for between $1 and $4 or half the price of an Audible credit. (laughs) And I will say, I have, as a big audiobook consumer, I love Chirp. I still have my Platinum plan with Audible. But I used to buy the platinum pack of credits you know, two or three times a year. Now that I have Chirp, I only buy it maybe once or twice a year. And I've switched a lot of my consumption over to Chirp. And I'm more willing to take a risk on a new author when their book is only $1.99 or $2.99 for the book. And so if you want to go with Chirp, you have to go with Findaway Voices or some other third-party audiobook publisher. And David, I'm curious, since you do audiobook publishing, how do you help your clients navigate the ACX or CHIRP? Because there's also, you make less money on Audible if you're not exclusive to Audible. So there is a trade-off.
1: No, that's exactly right. You're exactly right, and that's exactly the way we present it to them. We give them the options. Look, we you can when we produce a, a title for our clients, we give them all of the options available. And so, what we'll do typically is either we'll sometimes use Findaway. We'll also go out to Authors Republic, which is another of the throughputs to about you know the 30 or 35 other channels, distribution channels that are available online, chirping one of them. You know, if they're more interested in horizontal, or they're more interested in being, let's say, in public libraries or university libraries like that they're more likely to land there if they're doing the broader you know more horizontal uh, distribution model some of them just like to keep it simple and as you'd said correctly the uh, if you're doing exclusive you know you're looking at about 40% of uh, retail coming back to you as the author the publisher the author whereas if you go non exclusive you're into a 25% of sales kind of number on ACX so definitely trade offs it's subjective and each author sort of has their sense about how they want
0: to do it What I would recommend if you're writing a series is to go wide with book one so that you have a broad playbook of marketing strategies. And, yes, you're making less money on that book one because it's in a bunch of different places. But then you might consider going exclusive with Audible for the other books. That said, you're going to potentially alienate somebody who is like, I hate Amazon. I refuse to use Amazon. They're not going to be able to buy from you. That said, I think most people are agnostic like I am, and they're just looking for the best price. And so if I buy your first book on Chirp uh, and your second book's only available on Audible, I'll buy it there. But And I'd also say earlier on in your career, when you're trying to get more Audience, and you're just trying to get known, having the ability to do marketing tools like Chirp, which is going to guarantee you downloads, right? If Chirp accepts you, you're looking at a minimum of a thousand downloads, I would say. I, I have never talked with anyone who's gotten less than four digits on a Chirp promotion. David, maybe you've done enough for some people are getting less than that. But it's definitely big numbers, right? Especially if you're first getting started. It's not like, oh, I, I gave up you know, 15% commission and I got five extra downloads on Chirp. It's not like that. We're talking big, big numbers and growing numbers because more and more people are signing up for Chirp every year.
1: Yeah, Chirp is cool, and I haven't stared at it because, as you know, we're more a production company than a marketing company. So we don't tend to think that this is very fascinating. And you mentioned this pulse concept. Talk about that a little bit, the price pulse concept on Chirp. And that may apply to other distributors as well, I'm thinking, but maybe not.
0: Yeah, so price pulse is where you temporarily lower the price of your book. And you combine that lower price with a promotion, which is what Chirp is. So books aren't always $2.99 on Chirp. They're $2.99 for a few days, which connects with urgency and scarcity and social proof and all of those psychological triggers we've talked about on previous episodes. And it can create a frenzy. And what happens is that when that price pulse ends... The frenzy continues, and all those people who bought your book, if it's well-written, are buzzing about your book, and they get their friends to buy your book at full price. (laughs) They Mm. also go on to buy book two and book three of your series if those are out. And this is actually a really common way for authors who have a big series. They'll frequently price pulse book one of their series to get a new kind of cohort of readers reading through their list of books. And there's kind of two big strategies. One is a price pulse, where you take your high price book and you lower it to a lower price. And the other strategy, we have a whole episode on this, is free pulsing, where you make your book free for a short period of time. And this is even more extreme. You get an even bigger frenzy. You also get a whole bunch of freebies, people who only get free stuff. (laughs) But hey, their word of mouth is just as good as somebody who spends money, or almost as good, perhaps.
1: Actually, and I love this idea of you're uh, the first book going broad on distribution and planting the seeds for an audience you may not have otherwise tapped from only the Amazon ecosystem. That's something I'm going to take with me out of this episode, uh, Thomas. It's a very interesting way to do it, and then subsequently you can narrow band if you need to, just to you know to get more royalties out of your unit sales if that's something that you're uh, looking at. For our nonfiction authors, that's often not the end game. For fiction, it's the the product is in fact the book, so they are looking in more concerned about making money ROI on the product itself the the book itself but but for our um, you know our platform clients that are uh, you know it's sort of like a content marketing strategy for their back-end business model less of an issue Uh, so you know that's that goes into the mix depending on what what is the reason they're writing the book and what do they expect to get out of it in terms of ROI is it about unit sales or is it really about platform
0: which I know for you novelists may be a little weird to hear, but there is a kind of person who writes a book and they don't care if the book makes money or not, right? If you're an attorney and you write a book on copyright law, and that book makes you the number one attorney on copyright law, you're making so much money as an attorney, you're willing to give that book away for free. <laughs> and the more people who buy it, uh, the better it is for your law firm. Whereas for a novelist, the book has to wash its own face, or at least the books have to wash their own face. You might be willing to lose money on book one, but you need to make it up on the other books because you're not selling your legal advice or your counseling advice or what have you. All right, the next strategy, in like fact, the next block of strategies for audiobook promotion is audiobook specific. So while price pulsing on Chirp is kind of audiobook specific, you could price pulse on Bookbub, which is even more effective, frankly, because while Chirp is popular, Bookbub is eminently more popular because it's promoting ebooks and it's more established. But the next strategy is to go on a podcast tour. So the challenge with marketing audiobooks and why there's not a lot of content out there, there's not a lot of firms that do audiobook marketing specifically, is because only a small percentage of the population listen to audiobooks. It's a growing percentage. But as I've talked about in previous places... Uh, audiobooks went through a really awkward adolescence called the compact disc, which was a terrible format for audiobooks. And back in the days of the CD, audiobooks didn't die off, but they they went into hibernation. And a lot of people told themselves, I'm not an audiobook kind of person. They may have listened on books on tape and they didn't listen to books on CD, but now, now we have the iPhone. Now we have Android and listening to an audiobook is great again. But still, maybe half the population will never listen to an audiobook, which means if you're buying Facebook ads, if you're buying billboards or whatever else, half the people driving by that billboard will never listen to an audiobook because they are not a listener. Now, I know that's hard for you to believe because you are a listener. And do you know how we know that? Because you're listening to a podcast. (laughs) We're 20 minutes into a podcast, 30 minutes into a podcast, and you're still with us, which means you're an audiobook listener. So if you want to reach people like you, One way to do it is to go on a podcast tour where you are being interviewed by podcast hosts. And I will say, this is so important. If you're going to do a podcast tour, you really have to have an audiobook. Because otherwise, you're setting aside a huge portion of that audience that is Audiobook exclusive. So, some people are agnostic. They don't care. I'll get the audiobook or I might get the ebook. But other people are like me and we're only going to listen to the audiobook. And you know what? I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think I subscribe to 50 or 60 different podcasts. So, if you want to reach me, one of the best ways to do it is to go on a podcast tour.
1: Audio consumers are audio consumers. And in fact, if you're the author and narrator, Even more reason to connect with your audience so they can get a feel for your attitude, for your approach to the business model you do, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, You want to be connecting with your voice wherever you can and however you can. So that makes a lot of sense.
0: Now, historically, this was a strategy that was best for nonfiction because… On every nonfiction topic, there's, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different podcasts specifically on that topic. And there's probably 100 additional podcasts that those readers listen to that your topic is close enough to that topic where you can get on. But just in 2020, there has been a boom of podcasting so much so that podcast microphones are sold out around the world and a lot of novelists have been starting podcasts some because they listen to this podcast and I've talked a lot about the benefit of starting podcasts and how some genres are currently have no podcast covering that genre and so you could be the very first player and you know female dragon writing books you know you're the only one who's got a podcast on that micro niche uh, there are still micro niches out there that are not covered there's other micro niches that already have their half dozen podcasts. But now that there's so many podcasts out there, you now can start to go on tour on fiction-focused podcasts that interview novelists and talk about their books. This was a lot harder back in the day, and now in 2020, it's getting easier and easier. Uh, the next strategy is a sister strategy to going on a podcast tour, and this is to advertise on podcasts. This is Easier in some ways because you don't have to do it. And if you're you know, afraid of speaking in public or you're too busy to go on tour, you can still advertise, but it does cost money. You're going to have to spend money to advertise on podcasts, but it can also be better in that your frequency is higher. So while you come on as a guest and you have their full attention for the length of the episode, the advantage of advertising is that they hear about you every week for the length of your advertising run. And you don't have to produce a fancy radio commercial to advertise on podcasts. In fact, not only is that a hassle, it's less effective. The better way to do it is to do what's called a host read ad, where you have the host of the podcast read a blurb about your book, and even better, have the host read your book and give their own, hey, I just read such and such book and you should totally buy it. By the way, here's my affiliate link to get it on Audible or what have you. Now, David, you do podcast production with your company. Do you help with this advertising process? What are some tips when it comes to advertising on podcasts?
1: Well, I think you're right. I think the host read-ins or the pre-recorded host reads, are, uh, whether live or pre-recorded, are much more effective because that host does have a, an intimate connection with their audience and this testimonial that we talked about. Have them read the book, have them use the product, as it were. And uh, same here. The same holds true. They're going to trust. There's a no like and trust factor that is transferred from the host to the audience and it can result in book sales. And so... Um, We have, any given time, we have about 30 podcasts in production. Some of them do dynamic pre-rolls, mid-rolls, and sometimes post. But the read-ins are very, very effective. And I think for the book, Advertising Strategy, that would be a good one, a first one. Um, Would it be possible to do a pre-recorded, what I'll call a produced trailer? Uh, Yeah, but it doesn't um, fold into the audience experience of the podcast as much. So I I think I would favor the host either live or pre-recorded.
0: And people are always asking me, what's the hot tactic right now? What's the tactic that nobody is doing? And I'll tell you, nobody is doing this. (laughs) No no author that I know of is actively going out and buying ads on podcasts. And maybe it's happening some in the nonfiction space, but it's very rare. Everyone's buying Facebook ads. And you know why they're buying Facebook ads? Because there's a course on how to do it. But no one's doing this because there's no course. No one's making money helping authors advertise on podcasts. And so I'll say, this is your chance. You can be the only bidder. There are fiction-focused podcasts that maybe don't have a big audience, but they have your audience. And when you approach them to buy a sponsored ad and do a host read, you may be the first ever author to approach that podcast host and you're bidding against no one. You are getting the lowest price that anyone is ever going to pay for ads on that podcast because a year from now, once people listen to this podcast chat on Facebook groups, because I know that's what you do, the price is going to go up. So this is your chance to really take advantage of this strategy. And while I love it when patrons sponsor and we do a a patron read at the end of every episode, advertising on a kind of a generic podcast like this isn't where you want to advertise, or it's not going to give you as much bang for your buck as advertising on a podcast that specifically targets your specific audience. And I will say it's it's very interesting. None of the people who have written book marketing books have become patrons. <laughs> they're, they're not using this strategy. Even the authors of the marketing books are not using the advertise on podcast strategy for promoting their book and promoting their audiobook. All right, now it is time for the seventh strategy to boost sales to your audiobook, and that is to host your own podcast. This is how you become your own celebrity narrator where people are used to hearing your voice in their head and they want to hear your voice in their head for your audiobook. This is interestingly one of the original ways of monetizing podcasts. back 10 years ago, 15 years ago when podcasting was in its infancy, podcasters commonly would write books based off of their podcasts in both fiction and nonfiction and see those books become New York Times bestsellers. This is a tried and true path to the bestseller status. It's not used by many authors because starting your own podcast is a lot of work. It's also a lot of money and people don't like spending money, but it does work and has worked for a long time. And David, I know this is something you know a lot about, so give us some hosting your own podcast tips.
1: Well, we work with a lot of uh, thought leaders that decide to embark on this, and it is an amb- ambitious project. And I've sometimes, uh, it's very important that you know going in, it will cost money, it will take time to do, it'll take some thought and planning, what we like to call the listener experience, and uh, its it really is about building a platform for all things you, not just the book, perhaps, but everything you think about. It might hold to be more valuable to the nonfiction uh, author as I think about this because they're typically building a back end business strategy. So the book is one of several components. The podcast would be yet another. But uh, connectivity of voice to market, no, yeah, that's a no brainer. It's perfect. Um, unpacking subject matter in the nonfiction book that you wrote, or it could be the fiction book, and having conversations that are more dynamic with guests about that. Cool strategy, really brilliant, because you're unpacking things and you're having lively conversations on a podcast. So it's it's a, it's a strategy that I think could be really powerful. But again, cautionary thing is you need to be able to show up like weekly or minimally every other week. Any less than that, you're just not gonna build a momentum. You need to really be effective as a podcast host. That w- those would be some of my ideas around this.
0: So I'm gonna push back on a little bit of that and we can have a bit of a discussion. So I would say the place to start is with your audience. You need to ask the question, what are my target readers wanting? What questions do they have? What points of pain do they have? And this may mean supporting your competitors, right? If you, you start a podcast on you know female protagonist dragon writers, that may mean having the authors of other books who also are writing female protagonist dragon writers that are competing with yours, right? You're in the also bots, but it doesn't matter because you're attracting that audience.
1: I agree completely. Yeah, apart and different. And even for the nonfiction authors we work with, bring your peers on. Have you know, heated discussions about things, you know, create that conversation, perhaps uh, some conflict or discourse within the framework of that, that's going to be attractive to a listening audience around because they're interested in the subject overall. And there you are, you are the host of the show. In effect, you could argue you're controlling the conversation. You're positioning yourself as authority online, which is really a lot of what you want to do with a podcast in terms of the platform development
0: thing and you're gathering your tribe. Now, I will say one strategy that works and has worked for a long time is the audiobook book strategy. It, I feel like it, it went out of style because it was so much work, but Scott Sigler did this very successfully to hit the New York Times bestseller list over and over again, and many of others have used this, and this is where you're actually kind of producing the audiobook live on the air, (laughs) where you are recording one chapter per episode, and you're releasing your book in pieces, and then you release the paper book and the ebook and an edited audiobook. And sometimes, I don't know if Scott does this, but... You may even re-record the whole book because usually those chapters that are coming out they're not a rough draft but they're not a final draft and people chime in and they have their feedback and you'll do a revision based off of the listener feedback and then you're also giving the people who've heard the podcast version a reason to buy the book they're so like what has changed and they get to feel like an insider.
1: Well, yeah, I love that uh, idea about triggering off the audience uh, as well and uh, possibly revisions, but as well, um, there are very strict audio requirements for a release within the ACX ecosystem or even the others so you just want to make sure if you are actually recording live as a podcast make sure that you've got someone who understands what those specs are and how to do them like noise reduction and the format of the files has to be just so at a particular sampling rate a lot of technical stuff that we won't get in the weeds with today but just make sure you're working uh, you have the ability to remaster it so that it's acceptable and not rejected by uh, the ACX or the others that's just a little bit of caution around doing live uh, pod What did you call it? Patio. Patio book. Patio book. Thank you. It's actually the first time I've heard that morph of a word. That's
0: beautiful. It's an older term, sir, but it still checks out. I love that. (laughs) That's what we called it 15 years ago. We called them patio books. There's a website, patiobooks.com. One way to think of it, there's a different quality expectation. Podcasts are kind of like TV shows and uh, audiobooks are like movies. And most TV shows don't have the quality to make a movie without changing a lot of things. But if you are making your TV show, Star Trek The Next Generation, where you're spending a million dollars on every episode, guess what you can do? You can make a movie on that exact same set. And so just keep that in mind if you are creating a podcast. You really have to create a top-shelf podcast. You can't just be talking into a $50 blue snowball and hoping (laughs) everything will work out.
1: (laughs) With the dog barking in the background. Yeah, right. So
0: yeah. listen to my podcast on creating a podcast. Get my gear guide. that's uh, a free guide. And don't get the cheapest option. If you're going with the audiobook strategy, you want to go with either that mid-tier option or the most expensive option, which really is audiobook-level gear And that will set you on your way. You'll still need to learn about, you know, ACX's rules. And one option is you can hire a company like Audio Vita. I imagine you do this, and I know uh, others will take that podcast audio and give it some love. (laughs) Make sure it's the correct number of luffs and, you know, the um, levels are compressed at the right way and handle that technical aspect of it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So where can people find out more about Audio Vita?
1: Audavita, A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A is the name of the company, and uh, we're at Autovita.com. There's a contact us page. That's the, probably the best way to get me. Uh, you can also send an email to d wolf, D-W-O-L-F, like my first and initial and last name, at Autovita.com. That's the best way to do it. Thank you.
0: All right. We will have links to their website, and we'll also have links to the other websites we mentioned in this episode, like Find Away Voices and Author Republic. Just check the show notes at authormedia.com. David Wolf, well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Great to be with you, Thomas. Thank you. Our sponsor today is my course, How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest. If you want to go on a podcast tour, this course has everything you need to do it, from how to find podcasts to book, from templates on exactly what to say to get them to want to book you, to how to nail that interview. It's got media training from my over a decade of experience in podcasting and in radio, and the goal is for the interview to go so well that they want to have you back and recommend you as a guest to their podcasting friends. This is an incredible strategy, especially if you have an audiobook. You don't need to pay a PR firm $3,000 to schedule your podcast interviews. You just need to know the secrets of pitching podcasts yourself, and that is what this course is teaches you. And if you are a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you get the course How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest for 50% off. So becoming a patron is well worth the investment if this is a course you plan to get. Not only that, but Some patrons also get access to my podcast host directory, which is a directory of over 100,000 podcast hosts and their email addresses and their websites, which will help you find podcasts to email. So it's a perfect combination. It's like peanut butter and jelly. The course, How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest, teaches you how and the podcast host directory gives you the what. And you get them both if you become a patron first and then get the course, How to Get Booked as a Podcast Guest. And of course, we'll have a link to the course in the show notes as well as a link to becoming a patron if you're not a patron already. If you are a patron, you can find your discount link at the top of the Novel Marketing Patreon page. Just log in. Only those who are logged in are able to see it and that will activate the discount code. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Lauren Lynch, author of the Time Drifter series, Explore Ancient Civilizations from a Christian Worldview in the Historical Fantasy Time Drifter series. And Lauren, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. I really appreciate you helping keep the show on the air. And if any of you are curious about her series and want to do some time travel, we'll have links in the show notes. If you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can just share a link to this episode in a Facebook group of other authors who you think would find it helpful. Hi, Thomas. This is Deborah Torres, and I am the author of The Forbidden Gift, which is due to be published in May of 2021. So one of the things that I learned in the Novel Marketing Podcast, it was something really small, but it really meant a lot to me, was when James L. Rubart said to create a video pitch. And I thought that was a really great idea and actually ended up doing that. Um, I write Amish fiction. So we went to a barn uh, with complete with uh, roosters and hay bales and uh, went ahead and did a video pitch with that background and that setting. And I had my agent add that to proposals to publishers. And I believe it was effective. Tons more things I could mention, but that's one thing that if you hone in on something specific that comes to mind. Thanks and God bless. Bye. You've been listening to Thomas Umstadt Jr. and David Wolfe on the Novel Marketing Podcast. To find the blog version of this episode or to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit novelmarketing.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.